Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the TM288 Historical Theology 2 podcast. Today, we'll be talking about the emergence of the what is often called the fourth branch of Christianity, and that is Pentecostalism. The other three are the Orthodox Church, the Catholic Church, and the Protestant Church. Pentecostalism is the newest branch of Christianity to emerge, as it mostly developed in the late 1800s and particularly in the early 1900s. Not only will I speak about Pentecostalism, but I'm also going to talk about the emergence of a number of other spiritually oriented groups around the world. Oftentimes, these groups had some strange features that led to conflict in the culture that they were a part of, which explains in some contexts why there was either anti-Christian or anti-European hostilities. So today I'm going to be covering some of the content from PowerPoint 5.4, discussing American Pentecostalism. However, as a byproduct of the extended spring break, I also had to cut Lecture 5.6. The PowerPoints are still available up on Canvas. Therefore, I'm going to mix in a little bit of content from that as well, so you can get a better sense of the global scope of this phenomenon, given the fact that Pentecostalism actually emerged simultaneously in several other places around the world, and the fact that Pentecostalism is the largest growing branch of Christianity in most majority world cultures, by which I'm referring to Asia, Africa, and Latin America as they are often classified in contrast with Europe and North America. A final point here. Much of Pentecostalism that we will study here and later in the class as a global phenomenon is evidence of increasing syncretism between local cultures and between Pentecostal Christianity. Of course, this is nothing new. Those of you in historical theology know the great influence that Greek and Roman culture had on the emergence of early Christian beliefs. However, by and large, doctrines themselves have not been massively modified through successive changes in culture quite to the extent that we see around the world in the last 150 years or so. So with that extended preface, let's get started. I want to begin with some historical information about the emergence of Pentecostalism in the United States. This is from PowerPoint 5.4. Actually, an important component of the story of Pentecostalism actually occurs right here in Kansas. On January 1st, 1901, Bethel Bible College in Topeka held a revival. Agnes Osman, a student there at the time, suddenly began speaking in tongues. Now, many who were present, including Charles Parham, the first president of Bethel, and the one helping lead this evangelistic ministry and revival, interpreted this as a sign of the end times. After all, it was newly a new century, and that was the century that would be two millennia, would include the time of two millennia after Christ was born, given that he was born several years B.C., so it might be, Parham and others reasoned, that this miraculous gift of the Spirit was an end-times gift. Recall that Phoebe Palmer had interpreted her ability to teach along a similar fashion. The recent arrival of the Holy Spirit signified that the end times had come. And here she drew on Acts chapter 2 and its interpretation of Joel 2.28. Parham was influenced by Second Blessing Wesleyans, but was surprised to see this speaking in tongues, 
which was still quite uncommon among those of the Second Blessing Path. So Parham began an evangelistic and teaching ministry not only in Kansas, but eventually in Texas, and from there on to Missouri. It was in Texas that a man by the name of William Seymour first encountered teaching about speaking in tongues. Now, Seymour was a black American, and therefore he was subject to a number of ways of exclusion according with the Jim Crow laws prevalent not only throughout the South, but into the Midwest and other parts of the country. Because of this, Parham would not even allow Seymour to attend the teachings within the church where Parham was teaching, but he did allow Seymour to open a window and listen to the lessons from outside. So Seymour heard about this gift of speaking in tongues, and he became convinced that the gifts described and attributed to the Holy Spirit throughout the book of Acts and elsewhere were still available to Christians today. But rather understandably, Seymour did not like the extreme segregation that he was facing in Texas, and so he moved further west to Los Angeles, where he introduced Pentecostalism to the city, specifically through a warehouse he purchased at 312 Azusa Street. This is the location of the famous Azusa Street Revivals, which began to be held in 1906. This warehouse would fill several times a day for multiple services, each lasting several hours long. Now, 1906 was also the year of the Great San Francisco Earthquake, which many had seen as apocalyptic and again as the sign of the end times. So people flocked to hear Seymour preach a message of the end times bestowal of the Holy Spirit and the resulting holiness and empowerment that was possible there. But Seymour had learned from the prejudices and mistakes of Parham, and it actually allowed the revival to be quite racially diverse. It also was a context where women, multiple women, were allowed to publicly speak of their faith, again in a time when this was very uncommon. So Pentecostalism, from nearly its start, not in Parham, but at least in Seymour, was a very egalitarian approach, and was much more able to navigate the now multiracial aspects of the Christian faith in the United States than even denominations like Methodism and the Baptists. For these congregations had by now begun to split into congregations that were primarily white or congregations that were primarily black. The Azusa Street Revival was so dramatic that it drew attention even of major news outlets like the New York Times. So, what are the basic theological features of Pentecostalism? If you look at slide five on the PowerPoint for 5.4, I contrast Pentecostalism with Protestantism. Pentecostalism tends to be spirit and word-centered in contrast with Protestantism. So recall the reformers and their tri triumphant defense of the principle of sola scriptura, scripture alone as the top authority. Pentecostals, of course, accepted the authority of the Bible, but among some there was an emphasis on the Holy Spirit that argued that it was the Spirit, in fact, that had inspired the Bible, and therefore the Spirit was the true source of authority. Therefore, if the Spirit inspired new prophecies or teachings today, those new prophecies and teachings can be equally authoritative. Not all, pro not all Pentecostals went quite that far, but some certainly did. 
Second of all, Protestantism, particularly in its Reformed and Lutheran streams, tended to think of salvation as a forgiveness of past sins. The emphasis on the doctrine of justification led to that conclusion. When I converted, Christ's righteousness was imputed to me. That was the point at which I was saved. We've already seen a shift there among the Methodists and among the Second Blessing Wesleyans as they emphasized the doctrine of salvation. But Pentecostalism continued this trajectory and amplified it. Salvation was understood as an ongoing process and growing relationship with God. When it comes to making theological arguments, though Protestants emphasized the doctrine of sola scriptura, they did not hold it to mean that you could read the Bible without having any training in interpretation or without using reason and considering the historical teachings of the church, which they thought were properly deduced from the Bible. Therefore, in terms of practical method, as you've seen in the many texts that we've read, the tendency among Reformation-age theologians and during debates about Calvinism and Arminianism was to use reason in addition to scripture as the key source of theology. In other words, philosophy played a central role in the theological enterprise. In contrast, Pentecostalism in its early forms tended to emphasize experience more. And here it has continuity with the Wesleyanism that we've considered. Experience, personal devotional significance, is a key component of theology. If the scripture does not move us, it is not being effectively understood through theology. These are all important differences, but the main distinction between much of Protestantism and Pentecostalism concerns miracles and the physical supernatural manifestations of the Spirit. We've already seen a growing debate among Protestants. Cessationists believed that no such miracles were possible. They had stopped with the age of the apostles, since their purpose of confirming the apostles' work was no longer needed. Many of the revivalists, including at stages of their life, Whitfield and Wesley, believed that miracles and supernatural gifts like tongues could still occur today. But having admitted that, none of them believed that this was the normal experience. Even Asa Mahan, one of the more spiritual gift-oriented Second Blessing Wesleyans, thought that only some Christians received the Holy Spirit at a later stage in their life. These elite Christians might speak in tongues when they received entire sanctification, but not everyone would. In contrast, and with the egalitarian emphasis of Pentecostalism, we find Seymour and others teaching that the normal experience of converts today should be speaking in tongues or manifesting another spiritual gift, like that of prophecy or healing, for example. Those who claim to have converted but have not experienced the Spirit in such dramatic ways have good reason to question whether they are in fact saved, according to many, but not all, Pentecostal theologians in the early 1900s. So that's the emergence of Pentecostalism in the United States, but I've already said that this is a phenomenon that emerged in many places around the world. Similar religious movements that are not explicitly connected to each other, and by and large had no knowledge of one another, all began to happen around the same time. So, 
I'm only going to focus on one of these for now, and that is the Chilean revival of the early 1900s. There was a missionary in Chile called Willis Hoover, who had been inf influenced by the Second Blessing Wesleyan movement. He'd been there since 1889, but by 1909, there was a strong revival underway with distinctive elements that we would now call Pentecostal. According to testimony from Maria Pino de Navarrete, who was present there, the spirit would first come upon the participants of these revival meetings and knock them down to the floor. So today you've perhaps heard of the experience of being slain in the spirit, so common among Pentecostals around the world. This apparently originated in Chile at the time. Mrs. Hoover, whose name I've not been able to find in texts, the wife of Willis Hoover, would go around and be sure to cover women's legs with jackets or with blankets when they were knocked down in the power of the spirit. We have to be decent after all. Now, once these individuals who were slain in the spirit, once they got back up, then they would be said to be clean and able to receive the gift of tongues. The first to speak in tongues was purportedly a little girl. Willis Hoover actually believed that she was speaking Greek, which he considered a miraculous gift of tongues. But after time, the story is that a woman came to the church door and said, who is it that is calling me? She was Greek, but had moved to Chile. The girl was rebuking her, telling her not to commit adultery with the man that she was with, but to return to her husband. So the woman, convinced, repented and returned to Greece. It was not simply the speaking in tongues that was the miracle, but the fact that she was conveying a message from God to this woman, leading to repentance. Now this revival was accompanied not only by spiritual gifts, but by the reestablishment of certain charismatic offices. Nellie Laidlaw, for an example, an English woman who was also on mission in Chile at the time, began to function as a prophetess during the revival. Hoover was eventually kicked out of the Methodist Church for his beliefs about the spiritual gifts, which led him to establish the Pentecostal Methodist Church of Chile. Today, an estimated 95% of Protestants are actually Pentecostal in Chile, which would be around 2 million in total. This is only one example of many places around the world where similar phenomena emerged at the same time. I should note, though, that not all of them have resulted in lasting denominations that have been in relatively happy and loving dialogue with other Christian groups and have been relatively welcome in the cultures that they are a part of. In the early 1900s and even before, similar claims of miraculous spiritual gifts at times led to disaster and conflict. I'll simply note two examples here for now. The first comes from a man named Hong Sui Shan. And I apologize if I don't say that correctly. He was a man in China, I'm trying to use a phonetic guide for saying his name here. He converted to Christianity after he received a dream and used a Chinese theology text called Good Words to Admonish the Age to try and interpret this dream. As a result of his interpretation, he decided he was the younger brother of Jesus Christ, sent to lead China to repentance, and then to rule the state. This led to a rebellion with 25 million who died as a result. This movement is known as the Great Peace or Taiping Movement, where Taiping simply means great.
The rebellion lasted from 1850 to 1864, and with the death toll so high, and with the fact that the movement actually succeeded in taking over most of central China, the Chinese government has in large part been terrified of the possibilities of Christianity within its culture. After all, this is the most destructive civil war in world history. This is actually a fairly common trope in Asia during this era. Sun Myung Moon in South Korea, for example, or Yang Zhangben in China, founded the Unification Church and the Eastern Lightning Church, respectively, each of them claiming to be the second coming of Christ. These new messianic movements in China and in other places in Asia typically also appeal to miraculous powers of the Holy Spirit or to things like dreams and visions. The violence associated with them, again, explains some anti-Christian tendencies in these locations. Another example we might point to is the example of Nongabuse. Nongabuse was a young girl who was sent to the river with another girl. There, they met two men who claimed to be resurrected former leaders of a South African tribe called the Zosa. They castigated, these resurrected men castigated the tribe for succumbing to witchcraft and told the girls that if the men of the tribe would kill all of their cattle and corn, then the ancestors would resurrect and Zosa would find power again. In this religious belief, we see a combination of pre-Christian and Christian elements fused. The resurrection theme fit with the Zosa traditional religious beliefs, which anticipated a renewal of the world and a restoration of the end. However, the specifics of resurrection actually arrived as a byproduct of certain teachings by a man named Nixele, who was trained by Christian missionaries, but who rejected their teaching when they refused to acknowledge his visions. So he'd begun to share in the region a theology that taught that there was a white god and the black god. The whites had killed the black god's son. That's Jesus Christ. But Jesus had predicted a final resurrection, not only of humans, but of cattle. So here, they were called to kill cattle for several reasons. First, as a sign of faith that the cattle would be raised again. But second, also as a means of fighting a certain lung sickness that was already spreading in some herds dying. So it was partly a calculated risk. If the prophecy was true, the cattle would die, but rise again immune to the disease that threatened the food supply. Now, Nongawuse, the young girl, had a father named Malakaza, who was a Christian convert. Together, these two individuals, her father interpreted the two figures to believe that it was probably God and Christ, together appearing to warn the people of the Zosa. In response to this vision, to the teachings of Nixele saying that the black god and the white god were in conflict and that Christ, the black god's son, had been killed by the whites, and with this vision that promised a resurrection of all now that Christ had returned, as this spread throughout the Zosa community, 40,000 cattle were killed. An estimated 75% of Zosa men participated, to the end result that at least 4,000 Zosa starved. Perhaps these sorts of stories help you to understand the controversy surrounding the emergence of Pentecostalism. A favorable interpretation will suggest that these multiple spiritual phenomena in Chile and in the United States 
are evidence of the new outpouring of the Spirit across the globe as the end times approach. From this perspective, Pentecostalism is not only a powerful means of evangelism, as many thousands of new converts and even millions became Christian through this new branch of Christianity, but it is also a sign of the true Catholicity of the Church, as Christians from around the world, in various language and culture groups and racial groups, learned to be joined together in a way that had not been possible during the colonial era or within specific countries like the United States and South Africa, where there was so much segregation, racism, and violence toward minority ethnic groups. A more negative reading will point to figures like Nangawuse and like, like Hong Sui Xuan in arguing that these figures are typical of larger psychological and sociological patterns that modernity has prompted, which have led to spiritual delusions of realities that are not actually true. Sometimes extremely terrible outcomes arise from these spiritual phenomena. Other times things are rather benevolent. Nothing terribly traumatic came from the Azusa Street revival in the way that it came from the cattle killing of the Zosa. Of course, Pentecostals will admit that the more extreme examples we've discussed here are not legitimate, but that does not mean that there is no legitimate outpouring of the Spirit. Therefore, we need to point toward the need to test the spirits against the Scripture. Whatever the case may be, Pentecostalism is no doubt here to stay and to continue to spawn controversy. We've talked a little bit about the social implications of it today, but in our next lecture, we will go into much greater depth. Until then, I wish you all the best.